Hello everyone. I wanted to firstly say a massive thank you for supporting the show this year. We've had huge amounts of growth in 2023. We've reached over a million people this year alone with the podcast. It's been our biggest year yet in terms of the amount of recruiters that are listening to this podcast every single week. So a massive thank you to all of you that have shared the podcast, that continue to listen week after week. I massively appreciate you. And also for all of you that have also come along to the live podcast events this year in Bristol, London and Manchester. There's definitely going to be more of those uh, in 2024. So I look forward to hopefully seeing some of you at those events. Like we did last year, I'm going to give you the pleasure of being able to cast yourself back to some of the most listened to episodes this year. And it's going to be the top five. So I hope you have a fantastic Christmas break. And when you maybe find yourself going for a walk or want something to listen to uh, during that Christmas break that's going to get you ready for 2024, a big 2024, then maybe you can come back to these most listened to episodes of the year, the top five. Enjoy them. Julian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. We've got to know each other a bit. I know you listen to the podcast. I know a bit about your journey because we've been, you know, speaking over the last couple of years. So I'm I'm looking forward to, you know, dissecting, taking a bit of a step back and talking about the last five and a half years because I think, uh, yeah, from learning about your story, I think it's a great one. And really looking forward to everyone, you know, learning about it and, and everything that you've learned along the way. So before I ask you the million dollar question, let me just give everyone some immediate context, some career highlights, the show reel. So if anything, you know, I'm missing, you let me know. But, you know, from preparing from this, what I jotted down here is started your recruitment career as a 360 recruiter in November 2017. That's when it all started. First five, six months was a real struggle. I think you said to me that you did around 13K in your first five, six months, but your first year billings ended up around 111 grand. Second year, improvement, 215 grand. Third year, 260 grand, another improvement. And this was all in the UK market, in the regions. Then the fourth year, you started this US journey, as you just said, in your bedroom during COVID, so March 2021, and ended up that fourth year doing 616 grand in your billings. And that was American market from the UK. Moved to America in April 2022. But in your fifth year, financial year, which just finished, you hit the one million pound billings mark, which I know is a big goal of yours. And now, I don't know, we'll see what happens sixth year, right? In terms of that, that continuing that trajectory. So, you know, I think just to frame this up, a lot of people have been sold the US recruitment story. You're living proof that, you know, this is something that can become a reality for people because a lot of people are being sold what you could potentially achieve in America. So really excited to dissect mm-hmm. this with you specifically around, you know, BD, gaining traction, adapting to the market, pitching retainers that I know has been a big part of your story. So all of that. But let's just start. What are your thoughts on, you know, the characteristics and traits that you believe make up a highly successful recruit in today's market? And then we'll, we'll start from there. Yeah, of course. My general thoughts are it's it's intangible characteristics such as being passionate or competitive, I think, are, are two for me. Spent a lot of time really trying to look at different people in McDonald and company and, and the group and really seeing what they do well and then trying to replicate that and really sort of pushing yourself to drive and compete with people. I know not everybody 
has the sort of competitive feeling. But I think just when we're looking at hiring people, we typically call it the the why or the fear. And you really need something that is deep inside you that drives you to go and perform every day or drives you to get out of bed and make today a successful day. I've seen it from both sides of things in terms of people who we've taken on who haven't really been as passionate or haven't really had the motivation from inside them in terms of, you know, it can be anything from came from hard times when they grew up through to, you know, they've got a kid, they want to provide the best life for them through to they're just money motivated and they want to be successful. So I guess it doesn't need to be a particular reason, you know, in one bucket or another, it just needs to be a reason that drives the person on. And I've seen people that have not lasted very long in recruitment because they don't really see it as a as a career and something you can be really successful in. So the really the intangible ones, I think, in terms of passionate and somebody who's competitive or got that drive within them. And then let's just talk about this for a sec. Obviously, you, clearly it's important, but how much of an emphasis of, of importance would you say that is to, you know, your own story and your own performance over the last five and a half years? How, how important has that been for you? The key, yeah, key to it. I think, I mean, I think it's probably a bit of a detriment in that I'll beat myself up and push myself to the point of, of probably breaking to try and compete with people and to try and be number one. But that's probably what's made me successful and allowed me to get to where I need to get to. So that coupled up with, you know, working relentlessly to get to that point, probably the key driver or the key the key piece to the success. Okay. So let's just break this down a bit. So just really quickly for people listening, let's just talk first part of this journey. Just to frame up for people, you know, so your world, you can describe it to me, like, you know, the world that you recruit in, it's permanent. Like, could you just give us just a real high level flavor of, you know, the world you recruit in, the types of companies and industries that you operate in? And I'm going to, you know, go into the questions, but I think that'd be important for people because immediately people will be thinking, okay, well, what market is this guy here recruiting? What's his average deal size? All that. So just give us a bit of a flavor on that on when you was in the UK. And then, yeah, we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. So doing the same thing in the UK as I'm doing in the US now, we're real estate specialists. So working across development, investment and asset and portfolio management, also other areas in terms of some financial pieces. So looking at capital markets and investor relations roles for real estate groups as well. The main groups we're partnering with are real estate developers and investors. And that can be anything from on the investment front, a family office through to an institutional investor different investment funds. So that's really the the market that we're working within. And in terms of asset classes, it's a real range. So because we're real estate specialists, we understand different nuances and intricacies around different asset classes. So we've got a real range of coverage there. And then look, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but so in, in the UK, you, you wasn't in the London market, was you? You was doing the, the regions, right? Correct. So Birmingham North. Birmingham North. And your average deal size is between five and six grand? Probably some, yeah. Five to eight, probably. Five to eight, yeah. Cool. And then let's just frame it out just really quickly. Then what's ended up being the average deal size in the US? Because if you said you've pretty much been doing the same type of skill set, same thing, but in the US, what has that ended up looking like in the US? Probably somewhere thirty to $45,000. That's probably skewed a little bit in that I'm a bit greedy. So I'll work low-level roles as well if, we'll, if they'll retain us for them. So that probably skews it somewhat. But I think generally... The, the average probably would be around 50k. Okay, cool. Perfect. Right. So that, that just massively helps. So let's just, you know, start with this just initial period, right? Struggled at the beginning, like uh, a lot of people do, you know, looking back mm-hmm. at that period, and then we're going to really go into, you know, what changed, what you did differently, how you've continued to improve, not stagnate. But, you know, looking at those first five, six months, you could have easily quit, right? Did 13 grand in your first six months, but clearly then had a, a better finish to the year. So, you know, looking back, what was Julian doing wrong in those first six months, you think? Good question. 
I think it was, um, going back to the point I mentioned earlier, I think it was the real desire and, and actually understanding the opportunity that I had. I came from a sales background with Harley Davidson doing their insurance and candidly that was, uh, it was just a bit of a laugh. It wasn't really a career. Moved into recruitment because I wanted to scale up what I could take home and I had a few friends who'd gone and done that and I think I was just at the point where it was probably just a job for me you know it wasn't it wasn't a career and I also think that generally there's a there's a runway where you typically give yourself six months for everything to click and fall into place and you know the the initial stuff that you're putting out people then start remembering you and coming back to you and so on so you're trying to learn sort of different markets you're recruiting in as well as the the skill set of recruitment so that was probably the the sort of runway to to get up and running. How old were you when you entered recruitment? How old was I? Twenty three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair. It's still very much like you know. Is this what I want to carry on doing? Not too bothered if it works out, doesn't work out. You know, that, that's fairly normal. So when when did you start to get a sniff of like, hang on a minute, this is actually something that you know I could earn some good money, change my circumstances, you know. Because it doesn't just happen overnight, does it? Like you start to, you know, realize actually, you know, I've, I've got a great opportunity here. Where, when did you start to get a sniff of that, do you think? Going a little bit anecdotal, there was a candidate interview that I did and I met the guy for a coffee in Manchester and we talked about different roles that he might consider in different groups. And we mentioned a few of the smaller groups that are, are in the same space as what he does. And he kind of mentioned to me, you know, I wouldn't go and work for one of those smaller groups because it's not as appealing. I'm at one of the best groups that do this type of work now. And he likened it to the work and the opportunities I had with McDonald and company, where he said, you know, you wouldn't go and work for, you know, insert large corporate group or smaller shop. You know, you're you're with the best group of people. And so it, it, that day it clicked. And I think I mentioned this to you on the on the sort of prep for this, but... I actually ended up placing that candidate as my last placement before moving to America. And I still say to him to this day, you know, I, I really do owe you. I owe you quite a lot because that conversation was the real sort of driving piece for me where everything clicked. And I thought, you know, I've got a phenomenal opportunity here to be successful. So I really owe him a lot. So if that clicked, just casting back to this period, I understand that sometimes, you know, it takes a third party someone out of your typical circle to go, you know, look, you've got a great opportunity here or, you know, to give you a different perspective. So I totally understand that. But just if we can get into that frame of mind, you know, you just had this meeting, it's just clicked. You've gone, hang on a minute. Yeah, I've actually got a great opportunity in front of me. I'm surrounded by great people. I could really, you know, make something of this. What was the first thing that, you know, you did differently when you got back at your desk? What, what were some of the things that you started to do differently? It was just that mindset change, you know, just it was like the, the cogs turned. It's like, Let's work harder than anybody else. There was, I had a really great setup in Manchester in the, the, the guy that runs the office, you know, I, I obviously can't thank him enough as well. Um, but he really sort of integrated the knowledge and the, the sort of foundations of recruitment for me. There's a guy who was the second person on that desk and he's a phenomenal recruiter. He is just a machine. And so he was really the benchmark for me talking back to the competitive piece. That was the guy and I was like, okay, he's killing it at the moment. That's where I need to be. What is he doing? How do I scale things up and go from there? So really just finding those, the I guess the intrinsic desire to to want to better myself and want to compete. And whilst it seemed far away at that point, you know, we've got one way to do this. Mm. And then just on the, just to focus on this for a second, a lot of people listening to this will have those people in their team, in their organization, but not everyone will maximize that. So, you know, you just described this person, clearly inspirational, clearly someone you can learn a lot from. Like, you know, what did Julian actually do 
to extract some of that value to, you know, like pick up some of the things that this person is actually doing. You know, there's one thing seeing them, seeing them at the top of the leaderboard or whatever, but like what, how, what was your actual tact to, you know, actually extract some of the things that you can learn from this person? You know, did you say, hey, look, I'd love to go for a coffee and ask you a couple of questions. Did you, I don't know, ask to listen to some of his calls? Like what, what did that actually look like? How do you approach that? Well, because we're in such, such close proximity in the office, you could you could overhear calls anyway, but it'd be asking him questions around this client or why he thinks this candidate is suitable. And then again, it's it's just the just to bang on about the competing piece and the really driving yourself. I'll I'll go anecdotal again. Whenever I would get into the office, if he had found new clients on the system. I would look and I'd be like, you know, where have you found those guys from? And he'd tell me it was from one of the sort of marketing pieces that is shared regularly within real estate in the Northwest. And so I got to the point where I was checking that out sort of pretty frequently, but you get to the point where you check it in the afternoon and you see there's a new client on there that's just moved into Manchester, for example, and you go on the system on the CRM and he's already put them on. So then it's like, okay, so I'm on the right lines of things to scale things up. But how do I beat him? So then it came to the point where I'd get into the office before him. And the first thing he does every day, I know, is check out that publication. So I'm now doing that. And I know that if I don't get in early enough to review them, map them out, put them on the system and do my BD email or outreach, then he's going to have them. So he's my biggest competition, both inside and outside of the company. So really looking at the people that are being successful and that are doing well within the industry and trying to replicate what they're doing and pushing that a little bit harder or trying to get ahead of them and get any sort of advantage that you can. Yeah, no, great share. And then anything just on that tangent, is there anything else that, you know, you you sort of latched on to quite quickly? Could be, you know, on the candidate side, could be when headhunting people, could be managing a process, could be, you know, on the, the BD speaking to client side. Was there anything else that you found, you know, you latched on to and it really worked well for you as well, besides that from this person out of interest? It's not really sort of rocket science. I think the, I think the key thing is just speaking to as many people as possible, asking more detailed questions to better understand the market and to connect the dots. I think the real key piece, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later on in terms of the BD side of things, but in terms of connecting the dots and being able to leverage information from one person to the next, that's how you start to build up credibility. And then again, that sort of feeds into both the candidate side of things and the client side of things. Mm, okay, nice. So let's just sort of gear up then towards the US because I feel like that, that's been quite pivotal for you, right? I mean, you're, you're going through some real life changes you know, personally and professionally, you know, it's, it's exciting. So let's sort of talk about this window because look, safe to say, like leading up to the US piece, you know, you was on the upwards trajectory, working hard, improving year on year, which is what I'm hoping, you know, you'd be really happy for what you was aiming for. But then it looks like, you know, particularly from the performance wise, what initially gave you the uh, inspiration to look at, you know, the US or even consider that? Because, you know, you did the, the UK market for three years and then it was this fourth year where, you know, there's this huge spike in your actual overall billings performance. Mm -hmm. So first you just talked to us a bit about when did, you know, the US piece initially sort of feel like, actually, this is actually something that I'd consider and why was you considering it? This podcast is proudly sponsored by Sourcebreaker. And today... I wanted to talk to you about sales opportunities and how Sourcebreaker can help. Because are you tired of the competition beating you to new sales opportunities? Do you want to make more placements from your existing resources? Who doesn't? 
Transform the way you work with Sourcebreaker. Revolutionizing recruitment with AI-powered technology, Sourcebreaker powers you with laser-accurate search results across all your sourcing platforms to build candidate pools filled with highly qualified individuals, all from one place, not from multiple tabs in different places. You will get perfect fit opportunities automatically tracking relevant vacancies and events in your market niche in real time and pre-built automations that constantly scope your markets to deliver high quality results at speeds your competitors simply can't match. Head over to sourcebreaker.com for more information. Back to the episode. We'd floated the idea around about opening a US business for, for a little while before bringing the guy on that set everything up there. And really, it was just sort of growth and upward trajectory. I don't say I'd achieved everything that I could in Manchester because I could have had a pretty easy life. We've got a lot of, we've got a lot of the market share in the regions in terms of what we do. And so I probably could have sat there and, you know, not to be arrogant, but put 250, 300K in every year mm. and been happy. But that was really the, the ability to scale things up further in terms of you know, building out a team, having something that started from scratch that can present real ownership and yeah, just, just take over, take over sort of uncovered land. Yeah. So just new, new opportunities out of your comfort zone, something different. Okay. So just so we understand then. So the strategy was Madonna company hired someone experienced to open that up. And then mm -hmm. you were someone that I'm guessing put your hand up or, you know, put your hat in the ring to go, you know what, this is actually something that really excites me. So was the initial plan, okay, Julian, look, that's something that we're excited by too. Uh, let's give it, I don't know, a year period or whatever the time frame was where you're going to work the US market from the UK. Is that typically how it went down or what the sort of, you know, initial sort of high level plan was? Yeah, not far off. Um, I, I sort of made it known that I was interested in the role. Um, and then when they got to the point of bringing the guy on, I had a couple of conversations with the CEO and also the guy in the US, and we all felt like it would be a good fit. I don't know whether it was their plan to see whether I was successful from the bedroom in Manchester or not. <laughs> it was right at the point where Donald Trump had, had put a travel ban on the UK-US travel piece. So we couldn't fly to the US because... That was obviously in place. And the embassy also had a, a massive backlog on visa applications. So it was at the point where we were seeing how things were going, but doing it from the bedroom in Manchester wasn't wasn't that fun. So just so we know the timeline, when did you make your first BD call to a US-based real estate company? Like when, what month was that and what year? Yeah, April 2022. April, tw well, okay. I'm oh, sorry, 2021. 2021, sorry, yeah, April, it's right, April 2021. Okay, cool. So that's the timeline, right? So we're pretty much... Yeah, so we're that's two years, right? So, mm -hmm. firstly, you can be honest with us. You know, was there a plan? You know, was there? You know, <laughs> was, was there some sort of plan on? Because the US is fucking huge. What state we're we gonna go after? What we're we gonna focus on? You said obviously, you know, you're gonna cover the, the same specialisms, be known for similar things that you are in the UK. But you know, was there a high level plan on how Julian is going to, you know, go to market from his bedroom in Manchester? What, what was the initial plan? So. At the point where we brought the guy in, in America, he had sort of a six-month runway until we pivoted across to the US market. We had no appetite whatsoever to look at California, no appetite to look at New York. We were going to be Texas-driven and then sort of wider Sunbelt and um, the Rocky Mountain region with a little bit of work in the Midwest. Candidly, <laughs> it probably wasn't, probably wasn't that clear of a strategy, to be honest. I think we knew we'd had 
a great track record. We've obviously got a fantastic brand in terms of offices all around the globe. And so it really sort of played into kind of sharing our track record in different locations, looking at groups that we've done work with on other continents, and then also trying to build up relationships with some of the local players. To Alex, the guy that I work with in, in America, his sort of testament, he did a fantastic job of initially building up some track record from scratch for us when when he first sort of came into the company. We were working things in in all locations from, you know, Knoxville, which don't know whether you know much about Tennessee, but there isn't tons going on in Knoxville. And then you've got the the hardest requirements that somebody wants. But we're still finding the people. So we started to build up a track record. And then probably over that first 12 months, it again, being a bit greedy, we picked up stuff in different locations. And then as time went on, that transitioned to you know, let zero in on a certain market or have people designated to different uh, geographies. Okay, yeah, sure. No, I understand like, you know, part of journeys like this, you have to, there's experiments, there's risks you have to take, there's bets you have to make. And then once, you know, make some of those bets, have some of those experiences, you know, you can then refine, learn from and become more focused. So just with the early stage in mind, I guess, there's a lot of people listening to this that might be in the trenches right now of starting. You're not, you know, you obviously there's still so much for you to do and potential and growth, but you know, you're you're more out the other side here. You know, you, you've you've built more of this track record. You've had a ton of different experiences. So if we just focus on that initial period, like you know, knowing what you know now, knowing what you've learned from uh, obviously your peers and, and and the US team, like if you were to go back to that moment of starting this American journey in your bedroom in Manchester, what would your first 90 days look like? What would you prioritize? You know, what what activities would you be prioritizing? What would you be doing? Th- thing, what are the most important things to for us to be doing in those first 90 days, do you think? First of all, you need to build up a candidate pool because, yeah, if you haven't got any candidates to work with, you're going to really struggle to pick up work. You know, picking up vacancies or opportunities with certain groups and then trying to drum up interest or just trying to find a reason to better understand what these people are looking for and also better understand what groups are competitors to these companies. One thing which, again, I'll I'll sort of come round to it with the BD piece, but in terms of one thing I was typically doing on every call to better understand the market, every candidate that I regged at the end of the call, I would ask who would be the top two or three companies that you want to work with or you would work for in in a heartbeat. Mm. And if you think you're doing... 10 candidate calls a day on the light end. It's an extra 20 to 30 can, uh, clients that you can business develop with a warm lead. And additional to that, you're also building up your market knowledge, which I think is imperative to, again, be successful, to win work, to, to have good quality work. Yeah, no, that's a really smart question. So really double down on building your candidate talent pool, really get to grips with, you know, who are some of the best known brands, companies that people would love to to work for. And that'd be a really good start. I guess just quickly as well, and I want to sort of ask you some questions on the, on this BD piece, but how long did it take you to do your first deal? June, I think. Uh, sorry, no, the end of May, we have that Knoxville role I mentioned to you, we, we placed that at the end of May. But that was something that Alex had teed up that I was working on with him. So my first deal that I picked up, the placement started in June. Okay, because I think people also, you know, as you can imagine, listening to this, probably thinking, I might be sitting here right now and I haven't really gained any traction. I'm I'm a month in to, you know, trying to take what I'm doing in the UK, but doing it to the US. Like, how long do you think I should at least give it for me to be able to look in the mirror and go, you know what, I gave that a fair crack? Maybe there wasn't potential there, you know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. As long as it takes, there's, there's always potential, right? Nice. I know that's probably not the answer that, that you wanted in terms of time frame. 
I think, look, if you got to the point of four weeks in, it all depends on what you you sort of quantify as traction. If you built out a really great candidate pool within whatever niche or area it is that you're looking for, you can always do things with those people. And ultimately, and I listened to a few of your podcasts prior to this to, to do some prep, a lot of people talk about the long game. And, and I can't stress that enough that everyone wants to make a quick book now, right? But long term, the conversations that you're having day to day are going to impact what your future looks like. And just treating people the right way and making sure that you come across credible, whether it's a candidate or a client, you may not get something from them day one, but you know, in two, three months or in 12 months time, they should remember you from a lot of the other people who probably aren't as credible or aren't asking the right questions or adding any value. I think you'd look at a four week period and try and not to sort of zero in on KPIs, but look at the traction that we've had, I think three months to try and get some form of placement, given that notice periods are two weeks rather than, you know, four to 12 weeks. And yeah, just, just, I guess, try and set out the goals as to what you're trying to achieve outside of billings by way of building some sort of track record or building up relevant candidate pool or client pool. Cool. And then just a couple of other things here, just if we're just to, you know, just zoom in on the beginning period and then we'll go into what you think you double down on what you did really well, some of the strategies that worked. So like some people might be thinking, okay, so sitting in my bedroom in Manchester, London, wherever, going to the US market, I don't know, I might have had some success in the UK. Now we're going to go into the US. So you said that what would be fundamental would be speaking to candidates, building that talent pool. Obviously that, that's absolutely crucial, right? So why as a candidate, am I going to give you my time? If you haven't got any track record in the US, you're someone in the UK calling me. Like, I don't understand why someone in the UK is calling me. You haven't got any jobs to talk to me about. Like when we're speaking to these candidates, why should they give you your time? Like what, why, what value can you give them? What, what is it that you was leaning into? Cause you know, you're, you're trying to build something. So you haven't, unless you tell me otherwise, what are some of the things that you had to offer and, and why would these people give you their time? Good question. I think around the sort of value piece for these candidates, it's, it's really sort of having some form of track record somewhere and at least understanding the market you're recruiting in. I think it would be incredibly challenging to take somebody who's never done real estate recruitment, for example, and put them in a new market because they have no understanding in terms of recruitment, real estate, how they can create value for people. And look, a lot of it is persistence. You know, there are still people now, we're two years in, still people who aren't that familiar with us. I think that we've built up a good track record, but there are still people that we've, you know, hit on LinkedIn and put phone calls into. Still, we haven't any traction with or spoke with them. And so, again, it kind of goes down to the persistence piece and the value that you're trying to create is, as I say to everybody, whether it's a, a sort of junior level analyst through to the CEO or CIO of a company, everybody could use a good head, headhunter within their Rolodex or within their contacts. And so even if we're making the initial connection now and there isn't something to talk to the candidate about in terms of a role, what you can do and you know, to this point, I had a couple of conversations earlier where a couple of guys I spoke with weren't relevant for the role that I was working on. But we want to make that introductory conversation, number one, from your side, because you can pick their brains and get better knowledge on the market. And also, are they actively applying for things? If so, what companies are looking? But also, you are building a warm introduction. So the next time something does come on in six months time that is relevant, you can pick the phone up to that person. They should remember you if you've done your job correctly. And then it makes it a lot easier than just sort of a cold call where you're just trying to get the person's interest because you've already spoke with them. Don't know if I answered that completely. No, how yeah, you no that, that's fine. Look, I think I think this would be helpful for people just quickly. Like, what does that actually look like? <laughs> you know, like, let's say we're reaching out to these people on LinkedIn. 
I understand what you're saying. You know, you said about some of the things that, you know, we want to try and portray that, look, may not be able to help you now. However, look, I've got this track record. I'm confident, you know, at some point, I might be able to introduce you to someone that might be really helpful in your career. I might even be able to, you know, speak to you about a job opportunity that could be, you know, really positive for your career. I understand that. But, you know, would you mind just sharing with us early on, like, what, what does that actually look like? What does that actually sound like? Are you saying on LinkedIn, like, hey, look, building a market here, would you be against giving me 30 minutes of your time, confident, you know, I might be able to help you at some point. Are we trying to get that across in the message? What did that actually sound like? What do you actually lead with you know, via, you know, on LinkedIn or on the phone? Like, what does that actually sound like? I think I started out with, with one development role in Dallas. And so that was the starting point really in terms of reaching out to people and trying to use that as leverage. I think it's challenging. I think you would get shut down a lot more if you went with the angle you suggested there in terms mm. of, you know, we're trying to build a market out, don't have anything at the moment, but can we can we connect? So really trying to sort of mention or, or even try and get them on the hook in terms of there are tons of great groups that we're working with at the moment. I'd love to just pick your brains or hear a bit about what you guys are doing at this company. And then again, I mean, it's, it's really looking at some of the track record we've had in different locations and being able to talk to a couple of the global groups that we work with and then, you know, dropping some of their names. Um, I wouldn't say everything was probably right down the line in terms of, you know, you, you hear about an opportunity, maybe you're not working it, but you're sort of suggesting to that candidate that, you know, we know people at that company or we're familiar with some of the work they do. And so again, you're, you're probably doing a little bit of sort of faking it until you make it in terms of trying to just get interest and get the ball rolling with candidates. So I think really it's looking at potential roles that you may have or groups that you can leverage from a different location and sort of suggesting that you do some work with those guys just to build up that track record. And then it's a bit of a cycle then once that once that starts going and you've got candidates coming to you and obviously then sort of winning other work. And then just on this, just to progress this a bit. Sorry, I know we're going into the detail here, mate. <laughs> no, it's all right. Like, so like, you're me, aren't no, you? I, I understand what you're saying. So like then let's just say we're on the call. How are we approaching that, you know? Are we saying, you know, we worked with these types of companies, we haven't got anything on at the moment. You know, are you just owning the fact that, you know, you don't have all these live vacancies? I know you wasn't saying that that's what you're saying as to like why they should give you time. But like as well, what, what are you saying on on these phone calls? You know what I mean? Are you just saying that we work with these types of companies and mm -hmm. these are the types of, you know, firms that will likely be picking up jobs with and then you're sort of continuing that message rather than because some people might be worried about oh i might get on the phone call and they're going to say right tell me about this job then or tell me about that and they haven't they haven't got the they're not working on that job this podcast is proudly sponsored by vincherry today i want to talk to you about the power of the recruitment operating system disjointed tech systems are painful for growing recruitment companies too much admin, bad data, and no visibility. It's holding back recruitment organizations. Meet Vincherry. Vincherry is the creator of the recruitment operating system, a modern operating system for recruitment and staffing agencies worldwide. This natively integrated tech platform syncs data and workflows across recruitment agencies, front, middle, and back offices. Start off with a suite of modules, a core CRM, ATS, advanced reporting and analytics, video interviewing, and more. That's just their core product. Vincherry also works with a pre-integrated access products to expand your tech capabilities. Link up your recruitment websites powered by Volcanic or cover screening and pay and bill with the fast track integration. 
It's time to unite front, middle, and back offices on a single recruitment technology platform. Unleash growth without gravity. Let's go. Find out more on vincherry.io. And because you listen to this podcast, you get a discount. Check it out. Enjoy the rest of the episode. But you can easily objection handle that in terms of, you know, saying that you partner with X group. You don't need to mention a company. If somebody asks you about the role, you can say, we haven't spoke before. I'd be eager to sort of understand your background, understand a little bit about what you're doing. You know, can you give me some color? And then I'm more than happy to tell you about the group. Depends on the level of role. So, and again, you need to, you know, I think whenever we're trying to go into a new market and trying to build things up, you always have the ability to use a trapdoor to get away from something. You know, it's a role that my colleague's working on. I'll get more color mm. for you. Can I take an email after? Or I really want to understand your experience better because if you're doing X asset class, then it might not be relevant for this. And so I don't want to waste your time talking about it. The other piece that is valuable, Mr. Candidate, is that this isn't going to be the opportunity that I'm going to bring to you. There are going to be other things in the future. So whilst I've got you now and we've made time to set up this call, I'm eager just to run through in more detail what your background looks like. What would be the kind of thing that you would want to go move into? What would be the kind of role that you'd want to go for? And again, if you then go to the point of, you know, I don't know how well people will appreciate this um, this example, but if you've got a development manager and they want to be a vice president of development, you could probably tell them that the other role that you had suggested to them is probably more junior than what their expectations are. So I won't tell you about that one, but I'll keep you on the radar for the, for the future. So that's probably the way I would do it. I think registering a candidate, if they try and give you challenges in terms of who you're working for, you always have the ability to, to sort of either use the trap door or to step back and say, you know, we haven't spoke before. I'm eager to understand your background and also your aspirations, motivations, and what you're doing. And then I can provide you with the best type of company to to sort of work with or look at. No, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And I know, yeah, I, I think that'd be really helpful for people. So I understand there's a bit of a journey, right? You know, like you said, you've got to not presume that you know more than you actually do, but, you know, there's an element of, you know, you're trying to be what you want to become, right, before you become it. That's just the part of the game, right? So just as we were talking about this early period, and then let's go on to the BD strategies and, you know, how we went on to achieve these types of billing performances. Looking at that early period, what were some of, it sounds like you just went into it head first, clearly someone that's willing to learn, you've got the mindset, but what were some of the, you know, early challenges, maybe on the candidate side, client side, I don't know, that maybe you had to adapt to, didn't expect. Example might be one of the ones that I've picked up a lot on from speaking to people is uh, they had to learn the hard way that Americans are really good at, you know, being engaged, going, yeah, Julian sounds great, blah, blah, blah. And they'll be like that. And then they just won't hear of them and just get completely ghosted. Mm. Uh, they said that happens a lot. You know, there's the the salary conversation is slightly different. A lot of people, you know, you either can't tell, ask them what their salary is or they get really weird about that. So I don't know, what, what are some of the challenges that you found, you know, you had to navigate and adapt and, and you came up against? Yeah, I think really just learning the market and knowing where to go, you know, where to go fishing, I guess. Really sourcing the right levels of people and the right candidates. I remember when I first started, one of the first contingent roles that I worked on was for an investment associate with a, an investment fund in Dallas. And it was my first sort of crack at trying to, to build out the Dallas business. And I think I, you know, went through LinkedIn Recruiter sourcing people. I think I registered about 150 people in a three week period. So yeah, every day was, was long hours trying to find the right people pivoting LinkedIn certain ways to try and get the best people, interviewed all of those people, and then shared probably my best 10 people with the group. And 
as is the case with some clients, they're just incredibly hard to please. And so they took a few people to final and then didn't progress them and then decided to put the role on hold. But obviously it's means to an end. So probably the, the success piece from that was I ended up picking up another investment associate role a week later, sent my best eight people and got that job turned around within a week from shortlist to offer and acceptance. I don't really know about the people not coming back with Americans. I, I think that is an American thing where they are, you know, incredibly polite and friendly on the call, but they probably won't be as direct to tell you that they're not interested. So I think there are a lot of pieces around qualifying people. And, and again, going back to asking difficult questions or hard questions, because you don't want to waste your time and you don't want to chase people if they're not interested. But yeah, I'd probably say just learning the market and trying to build up that knowledge being the, the sort of key piece and the most challenging early doors. Yeah, nice. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Let's go into the BDP then, because you know, you're, you're not hitting the type of numbers you are without consistently bringing on great client opportunities, great jobs that are fillable, you know, so, so let's just talk a bit about this. So, you know, you can, you can go into the past year, last year, but if we were to talk about Julian's business development strategy, mm-hmm. we've spoken about the importance of, you know, the candidate talent pooling and not just having your candidate hat on, you're asking smart questions like, you know, what one to three companies would you love to work for, or you think are amazing. That's obviously, you know, you're building your market mapping there and you're building companies that you can obviously go after. So obviously part of the BD strategy is, you know, ask good questions, use the candidate conversation, use information to my advantage. But what else, you know, in this BD strategy for Julian, what, what else did it consist of? What else did you find, you know, really worked for you over the last two years? I mean, I, th- I think everybody said this more recently in the past 12 months, just given how hot the market was when you were uh, specking out candidates, you know, that was probably the main driver for a lot of people. Our aim wasn't necessarily with that piece to place that candidate. That was more of a, a tool to get a client on a call who had a requirement. And then we would then pick up the work and go through that process. There are obviously tons of tons of different routes into into BD, whether that's looking at different ad chases or again, leveraging candidates in terms of, you know, where else are you interviewing or I don't want to make sort of duplicate introductions. So, you know, where, where would you look at as a as a group and how far along are you in, in those processes? And I guess trying to leverage them to the point of understanding who they're working with in those processes, whether that's a recruiter or whether they're doing it all direct. Outside of that, I mean, you, again, cold calling pieces. I think with the whole cold call piece, and, and this was something I was discussing with one of my colleagues earlier, people don't necessarily like to be sold to. So I think that really the key piece when picking up the phone to various individuals, I, I don't like the idea of somebody sitting behind a spreadsheet and ringing one client after another for 100 calls because you can't have any sort of value or build up any sort of talking points with these clients. So one thing that we always tried to do alongside looking at the target pool of clients we wanted to work with was also, if we are going to try and business develop different groups that we've picked up leads for, looking at their website, looking at any sort of information on Google in terms of the news or anything else to see whether if they're doing development, they've got any projects in the market and relating that into the conversation. Because people like talking about themselves, people like talking about you know, some of the stuff they're doing and some of their accolades. So it's really trying to show you've got market knowledge and credibility and then talking to those pieces and trying to take the conversation from there. I think a lot of the time people get a little bit displaced with trying to build rapport with somebody on a call when they didn't really want the call initially. They probably don't care that you've got a dog called Bubbles. They don't want to tell you about their dog. They're not interested in any of that. What they want is to better understand what you've got going on, what you know is going on in the market and 
people love f- f- uh, free things, right? So whether you then present them at some point with salary benchmarking or Intel on the market or what the competitors are doing, but it's really trying to strike up a chord with somebody with useful Intel opposed to, how's your weekend, mate? You know, what are you, mm. what do you do? Do you watch the football? They're not interested. They're, they're busy people. So looking at different routes into into sort of starting the conversation that way. So it sounds like showcasing candidates was pretty pivotal, like that that was a big part. Yeah, initially. I mean, um, trying to spec out good quality people. And then as soon as we sort of got on the call with them, we could talk to track record and requirement and qualify the job properly and then position ourselves the way we wanted to. Has that worked in the last six months? As well? uh, I mean, I sold three retainers so far this month and I've been on holiday for a couple of weeks. And <laughs> uh, the same last month. So the appetite has been slower in terms of the responses from specs. But again, the, you know, probably at a luxury point where, well, I could pick and choose what work I picked up. And so if I've got the bandwidth to service it, then I can. And if not, then somebody else can pick it up, I guess. We're going to go into the retainer piece, but just clearly that that's been, you know, a really important tool. And everyone listening to this will be specking out fucking candidates, regardless if you like it or not. So many recruiters will be doing it. Some recruiters do it great. Some recruiters, not so great. For me, when we say not so great, I just feel like it's just super unpersonalized. It's, you know, send out however many emails, not even thinking about the person receiving it. And I'm sure there'll be, if we send it to enough people, there'll be people coming back, right? And and I do feel like that is definitely one of the activities and habits that, you know, does a good job of uh, tarnishing our reputation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let, let's talk about how does Julian approach specking? Like, what, what does that look like? What, what is a good spec from Julian? Like, are you calling me? And, you know, you've got your pitch ready going, hey, look, I haven't spoken before. Looks like you've got some good projects on the go. Spoke to this investment associate person at the moment who said that they'd love to work for your organization. Don't happen to know if, you know, you have anything going on at the moment or, you know, are you mainly emailing people? What are your principles to doing exceptional specs that actually get responses to? A combination of those pieces. So first of all, they need to be, one thing I think sort of talk, worth talking about is, is looking to build out your database and making sure that it's clean in terms of coding people with the right sort of code, skill level, competency. Because, yeah, I'm sure, you know, the track record of people sending out specs for completely irrelevant candidates is not going to be very high, I'm sure, in terms of return. So really looking at different asset classes and then also different competencies and trying to bucket people that way. It means that we spend longer in terms of trying to pivot all of that data and making sure that we're not hitting the same people, you know, with sort of multiple specs. And also just making sure that it's relevant is, is at least in the right wheelhouse. There's nothing worse than obviously receiving something um, unsolicited where it's yes, not even relevant to you. You don't really put a, a good account of yourself in terms of those people receiving those sorts of emails. So really looking to splice it and make it relevant to however many people you're trying to hit. Additional to that, picking up, again, going back to the piece about trying to get information from candidates. If you know that there's a hiring manager in, in a certain company and you've done a similar search or you've got good candidates that cover the same thing that they're looking for, then obviously you can tailor it much more directly to that individual. But honestly, just given the, looking at the US market, given the amount of people and just how broad it is, it is too challenging to try and splice absolutely everything and just dumb it down to the point of putting 50 to 100 people into a hot list because that'd be a full week and nobody's got time to do that. I also typically like to anonymize a resume to go on there uh, or a CV and the email should not be incredibly wordy and detailed because people just delete that. 
should be pretty brief and to the point, probably two sentences. And I think that typically gets more traction than doing a bit of a write-up on an email as well. What might those two sentences sound like, Julian? 100%, bro. Two sentences, what? What might that sound like? <laughs> you know, first name. Uh, enclosed here is the resume of a talented development manager that I'm working with. They're currently doing industrial projects within the DFW market. If of interest, let's set up a call. Yeah, uh, just super direct. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you don't, you, sorry, you don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste their time. If they like the look of that resume, they're going to get on a call with you or they're going to show interest. If they don't or they want to mess around, then you're just not interested. Your time is very valuable. Yeah, and clearly this has been one of the most effective ways for you to open doors and then consult, getting them on the call, all of that. Yeah, exactly that. So, all right, cool. So let's let's move this on to retain. We're going to go a bit over the hour mark here, but that's fine with me if that's cool with you because I think there, there's, more yeah, to, there's more to dissect here. So, okay. So what I want to know then, because you shared, it with, with me, uh, shared this with me on, on the prep call, was going into, you know, the year that you just had, you shared with me that, you know, you set your eyes on becoming the top biller, yep. which you then went on to achieve, right? Which is where mm -hmm. you've hit just over the million uh, UK pounds mark within a year. So firstly, what I'd love you to just share is how did you make sure you wasn't overwhelmed by that? Because like, did you know that you're going to have to build something around the million or, you know, what being the top biller, what, what was like the initial figure that you knew you had to get in and around? I thought it'd be high hundreds of thousands. So there's a guy who was sort of competing against for the last few months and he's been the top biller for the past you know four or five years since I joined the company we joined at a similar time albeit he has a lot more of recruitment experience and as far as I sort of would see it he's like the goat in terms of what he's been doing I think he finished last year on like 825,000 sorry right. the, the year prior yeah so I figured it would be high yeah high hundreds of thousands maybe a million but I didn't really have a number inside I, I kind of thought Let's try and do a million dollars and see how that goes first of all. And then once we got to that point, it was like, okay, let's see if we can do it in a different currency. And yes. So, so, so what I just love you to just share, because I think, you know, we, we basically, I guess what I'm interested in is how you sort of broke down, broke that down. Because I, I find speaks a lot of top performers that this is what they're really good at. Because, you know, you were, you know, so basically earned, yeah, 840K dollars in the fourth year. So I guess, yeah, it's an, uh, it's an extra like 20%, basically, you're like aiming for, you know, to get an extra 20% out of what you did in that first year in America, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, beginning of the financial year, we're at fucking zero, you know, starting again. What, like, how did you break down that target, a million dollars, to make sure that you, because looking at that, you know, writing it down, you're like, how the fuck am I going to do that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a big number. So like what's been your, you know, process to, if you do have a process on breaking that down so you don't become overwhelmed by it and, you know, you you focus on chunks if that's something that you do. I mean, I'm always overwhelmed. So <laughs> probably not the not the best question. Um, I mean, look, it's, it's just like taking accountability at the end of every day. You know, I'll always check my KPIs or my stats for the day to recognize whether I've had a good day and, and equally sort of a good week. And if you're, it's like uh, putting ingredients into a cake, right? If you put enough of each thing in, it should turn out okay. I didn't really have a set number that I needed to do each month. It was mainly a case of just working relentlessly. And honestly, going back to the competitive piece, kind of keeping an eye on anyone that was ahead of me and just making the decision, you know, work harder, work longer, just try and deliver for clients and ultimately, you know, it should work out okay. And then obviously you get to the point as, as we get closer to the run-in where you're keeping an eye on what they're doing and again, sort of trying to trying to push as much out as possible in terms of business development, picking up work and then 
finding ways to try and service that as well as trying to keep plates spinning. So I think what what people be interested in is what what do those what were uh, you know Julian's key ingredients the KPIs what were some of those and they might change in certain parts of the year but you said that you know I'd look at my key KPIs and that'd make, that'd be an indication to me that you know I had a better day rather than a not so great day so what what are some of those key KPIs were you always looking at if I register five candidates per day then I should be on track or you know what what were some of the key ingredients. Yeah, so candidate calls typically I'm in for 10 a day. And they have to be relevant as well, right? It's not a case of just registering somebody that mm. isn't really relevant to what we've got going on or wasting time on that. Client calls typically trying to do two or three a day. I mean, my specs target was, yeah, in the thousands every month. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what that was meant to be, but trying to get specs out consistently. Again, good quality CV. So a lot of the, a lot of the pieces around sort of BD, being a consultant to the group. So making sure every resume that we're sending or every CV we're sending, if the client picks me up and asks me why I've sent that person, making sure that I could talk to the reasons why and my thought process. So sending good quality CVs, not just trying to hit a target. And then obviously converting those to interviews and again, consulting the clients to, if they're on the fence about somebody, the reasons why we should consider having that conversation. What, what do you aim for your CV to interview ratio typically to be? Probably two. Mm. Yeah, should interview probably one in every two people. It, it yeah depends on depends on the group and depends exactly what they're looking for. But we're trying to put together a short list of probably eight people. I'd expect half to to get the opportunity to interview. And there have been short lists where I've shared eight people and they've wanted to interview six or seven, sometimes all eight, which is sometimes great. Sometimes you're thinking, I don't really know if you know what you're looking for because mm. I give you a bit of a range of people. But um, you know, a, a large part of the role is consulting clients through the process. A lot of them are hiring a certain individual as a new hire that they haven't done before. And so you have to kind of work with them to help find what they like and what they don't like in candidates. Yeah. So I know, I know we're talking a lot about quantity here, but as Julian said, if you're listening, <laughs> quality is just as fucking important. But I think what, what I love hearing here is we're talking about quality, but also the quantity required, the inputs required to get anywhere near the million mark. You know, so we're talking 10 candidate calls per day, at least two free client calls per day. I mean, you mentioned the number of thousands of specs, so, <laughs> you know, good number of specs. And uh, like, that's really helpful for people, you know, because there's a lot that you could be doing. But, you know, if you're getting in around there and you're asking good quality questions and you're using information to your advantage, then, you know, then we can really be building traction and, and moving forward. Julian, let's talk about this retain journey then, because, you know, you told me last year... Yeah, you told me last year, every single deal that you did was retained, right? Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So talk to us, mate, because the fourth year, how many how many retainers did you sell in the fourth year? Uh, so I made some notes just for the for the prep. So I sold yeah. 18 retainers in the fourth year and did 42 placements in total. So that was, that was inclusive of the retainers. And then last year, I did 58 placements and 33 of those were retainers. Fair, three retainers. So there are a few okay. still yeah. falling into this year. So let, let's just talk about this and, you know, we'll talk about this and then we'll sort of, you know, wrap this up. But so, okay, 33 retainers, so you went from 18 to 33, so you doubled basically. And then prior to that, you hadn't ever worked in that way, right? Uh, I, I checked before. I sold two in the previous three years. I sold two in the previous, okay, cool, sweet. All right, so let, let's break this down then, right? So, okay, let me first start, I guess a good question to start would be, if you sold two in three years and you sold 18 um, in that fourth year, what the hell did that pitch sound like when you sold two compared to what it sounded like when you sold 18? What, what were the main differences in that pitch if we were sitting in on that pitch on retained? I mean, the, the two that I had sold retained had been 
existing clients previously. It was more a case of talking about the time that I had to put into the searches to to make it worthwhile. So again, it was sort of nominal amounts up front, probably two or three thousand pounds. And yeah, I probably felt a little bit cheeky asking for money up front. It's certainly changed since then. I guess sort of pivoting to now, really just, just expressing that the my, my time is valuable. I think that you know, it sounds incredibly sexy when you talk about exclusively retained work and everybody wants to do it. The reason we do it isn't because it's sexy or because we can say, you know, I've got retained jobs on. You really look at the contingent model and the retained model. And when you're doing contingent work, that money is never guaranteed. And so typically what you see is recruiters will pile themselves up with as many contingent jobs as possible. They'll probably send three or four learning fruit, you know, candidates And then that probably doesn't get that much time because there are other recruiters working on it or they're just not sure that they'll get a fee. The key piece around how we're positioning this and why we're doing it isn't to get money up front because that doesn't really mean that much to us besides commitment from the client. It means that we're working it on an exclusive basis. We have the ability to map out and vet candidates properly. It's guaranteed money, so it means that we can put as much time into it as possible and ultimately build out and provide the best shortlist of candidates. So that's the reason that we do it, because we cover our own back and it allows us to do a proper job opposed to, you know, I'll send four candidates and somebody else will will speak to one person and they'll send them. It's just not of interest. And so it's really having that mindset that we want to do the best possible job and consult to these clients. And so we're not just taking money off them and kind of doing nothing with it. We work relentlessly to provide results. So, okay, so let, let's just talk about this then. Because I, I think everyone listening, Julian, will go, well, there has been nodding. They're like, yep, definitely agree, all these things, right? But all those things that you just said is how it helps you and your team. Not because it's sexy, not because you're getting money up front, but it, because your time is then, is, is that you're actually putting a value on your time. And as you said, you can really commit to delivering a great service, but that's all the benefits to you. But obviously in order for you to sell these consistently, the other person you talking about them has got to feel like, okay, well, that makes sense for me and, and my business and how that's going to help me. So, you know, let's just talk about, let's just talk about this process. Okay. Cause mm-hmm. you know, people might be like, okay, well, how, how does, how does this actually work? Is it different? Is it not different? We'll find out. So if, you know, I become a client that you speak to about, you know, pitch and retain to, are there, so what are the steps firstly, you know, you might've sent me a spec CV. I've gone Julian this candidate, mate, this is, this is someone that I'm excited by. We get on a call. Mm. Yeah. You know, talk yep. to me about the process. Are we are going to go straight into, you know, a bit of a discovery call? And then we're going to book another call where we then do a proper pitch on the retainer. What, what's the typical sales process? Uh, we're just, we're just in one call. One call. And we'll go through. Yeah. Yeah. One call. Okay. If they want to do a follow up to understand terms or, or any other pieces, then, then we can do that. But I'll typically try and make it 30 minutes or it might overrun slightly depending on the level of detail we get into. Okay. One call <laughs> over, over video, yeah? Over video. Phone call. No, I don't do phone video. Phone call. Okay, right. Right. Let's break this no. fucking phone call down then. Come on. Because <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's surprising to me. I'm not going to lie. I thought there would be, but this is why I think this is, this is helpful for people because I thought there'd be a bit more to it. You know, you might put a presentation together. You might find out a bit more around, you know, about their challenges, their their pain points. But th- this is great, you know, because this is unearthing, you know, people might be overcomplicating this stuff. But why don't you share with us what is important that happens on this 30-minute call? Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll run into that now. I, I think just to your point about the, there probably being a lot more to a video call, presentation, mm. whatever, I, I don't think they really care. Like, honestly, mm. I don't think they really care. I, I think the key pieces that they want to know are, 
what does your track record look like? Does this person ask the right questions and understand what we're looking for, but also giving them the confidence to, you know, believe that you will deliver for them. In terms of the, I mean, look, I, <laughs> I'll give you the example. I play a lot of poker. I'm not going to show you all of the cards, <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, give do you... we want the frameworks, you know, people listen to this, we want the frameworks, you know, what, what, what are some of the key things that, you know, we're going to go through? Yeah, I mean... Definitely do your diligence on the company, first of all. Take a look at some of their material. Take a look at what they're typically doing. Have a look at people within the group to see whether you know anybody or, or are familiar with them. Maybe you've got some as candidates, and so you'll have insight into some of the stuff that they're working on that you can relay you know in the market about the group. And then look, really, I I let them lead the call by way of, do you want me to give you a, a background on McDonald and company, or are you familiar with us? Uh, or why don't you tell me a bit about what you guys have got going on? You know, why did this development manager interest you? What did you have in mind for this person? Typically, they'll give a high-level overview and they'll probably go into as much detail as they think is required. I think then I will talk to them on a much more technical level in terms of different pieces around the role and, you know, probably make recommendations or suggestions as to why I think, would this person fit coming from this background or... You show credibility with your questions and your understanding. Exactly, yeah, of, show yeah, credibility. I understand, get that, yeah. And also talk to any sort of track record or it, whether they know people at another company that you'll be familiar with. I think that's a key one in terms of how close a lot of these markets are. I think providing you can mention a name and you could happily say to the person, yeah, give, give Dave a call now. He'll say great things about me. They won't call Dave, but if you're willing to be that sort of, you know, brashing out there, they'll probably think, okay, this, you know, this guy probably knows what he's doing. So... Go into technical detail, understand the role better, really deep dive into the company's culture, growth, trajectory, really talk to the ability to understand everything so that we don't waste their time or our time. And again, sort of talking through the the whole candidate journey piece because people want to have a good reputation in the market. And so, and you also want to work with groups that aren't going to dick your candidates around and give you a bad name. A lot of other pieces, I think, that we sort of leaned on, particularly through COVID, would be our ability to manage candidates' expectations. You got to the point where you had three or four opportunities per candidate, you know, and you weren't representing them on all of them. So really sharing with the clients that we manage our candidates closely, the percentage that we typically lose to counteroffer or to another opportunity was incredibly low, and talk around those pieces and how we do that. Then go into what I would like to think is a very fluent or fluid pitch of the company and some high points around why we're specialists in what we do. Talk a little bit to the track record. I heard somebody mention on a on a call the other day that they use pitch decks. Oh, sorry, I'm one of your podcasts, yeah. but they use pitch decks. Um, I think that's useful for people. I've got a pretty good memory, so I usually know competitors that I can talk to and people and people I've placed and so on. So I'll, I'll drop a few names there in terms of those pieces. And then I'll typically then ask them, you know, do you want me to run through what our contract looks like? And it's just you know, straightforward. This is how much you pay up front. This is what it looks like. You know, we have cancellation clauses in all of our contracts as well. So if they don't make the placement, then obviously we'll, we'll charge a fee on top of that. So it is sort of real exclusively retained work opposed to just taking a little bit of money up front and then kind of leaving it open. And then look, I think the, the other piece really is just trying to close them. We've had this a few times where some of our guys have, have done what they think are really good calls. Like, yeah, I've just sold a retainer. And then a week goes by, two weeks go by, client isn't coming back to them. So I think, you know, providing they want to talk to it, you ask them around from the contract, is there anything that stands out to you there? Is there anything that you feel uncomfortable with? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And there have been calls where I've sat and talked through different parts of the contract and, you know, where we can probably add some flexibility or 
the reasons that we have that in there and how it's beneficial to them. And it's really just making them feel comfortable with what we're trying to do. But again, I think the key piece going back to it is just market knowledge and credibility. If you can talk credibly and ask high-level questions and reference people that you know in the industry that you've done work with, then that's probably as good as it's going to get in terms of, you know, you should pay me money up front to do this because I've done this search 10 times in the past three months and there are, you know, we've got pools of people and, and relevant bits. I think one other thing, and look, I'll, I'll overshare here a little bit. I think um, when people are pitch and retained work, usually there's always this emphasis that we have to, uh, we have to bow down to the client. You know, your company's great. You do all of this really good work. That often goes against people in the, you know, they think, all right, well, if we're great, we'll post it on LinkedIn or, you know, you should be privileged working with us. Whereas you have to have the confidence in your mind, number one, that they should be privileged to work with you because of the value that you're going to add. But number two, I wouldn't say diminish what they've done, but I also think that you probably over-egg, even though you've done this search a few times, you know, you probably over-egg that it is challenging because, you know, there aren't tons of these people that cover this area in the market. So you've got a small pool of people to work through. This is the reason that I think that you need to get on this approach, because if they think it's easy, why can't they give it to you know, another corporate group that will do it for 15% and no retainer. So it's really trying to suggest that you'd have the ability to to pick the work up and do it because of your track record, but also not fluff the client up too much to the point that they think, ah, this is going to be pretty easy and actually they'd be really lucky to work with us. Mm. You need it to be the other way around. No, I appreciate you sharing all that, Julian. And look, I think what what I actually take from that, and this is something that I always think about because I'm always someone that's willing to learn on sales and willing to improve is, Obviously, there's so much power to understand. It's it's often not what you say, but how you say it. So for me, what I take from that, Julian, is if I was listening into one of your calls, you know, the way that you would speak about McDonald's and company, your track record, how you work, it would just be with, you know, conviction, you know, directness, confidence. And this is how we work. You know, there, there's no there's no element of like, yeah, like it'd be like, it'd be great if we could work this way. It's like this this is how we work. It's like if you um if you wake up one day and decide you want to go buy a new car, you go to the Mercedes garage and you pick up all of the extras, they don't start saying to you, Oh well, you know, we like this white leather or this cream leather that you've picked, you know, it's it's gonna be twelve thousand dollars to add that on, but you know, um well we can we can try and move around like that's the price. That's that's what it costs for what you want. So if you mm. want to do this and you want to do it the right way, then let's do it. We can, we can service it and we can make it happen. If you don't, then that's also mm. fine. Just don't waste our time. Mm. It's, yeah, it's just having the confidence, you know, this is the way that this is the way that we're doing things. And if you want to try it out, you know, we'll we'll do the work for you and there's there's no problem with that. If not, completely fine. And then and and then just a couple of bits. So typically when I speak to people, how they would structure this would be, and I know it might vary and you might have some flex, but as a, as a sort of core product, core service, typically when I speak to people, it's like, you know, they'll ask for X amount of the overall fee upfront, sort of commence the partnership, commence a project. Mm -hmm. Then it might be, uh, it might be broken into thirds, you know, then the next third might be when, uh, you know, you've presented a shortlist, initial shortlist, and then the other third would be when that person has then signed a contract. Are, th mm -hmm. are those typically been the same milestones that you've, you know, used to break down your service typically or? So we don't split it into thirds. So we'll have an upfront fee and then there'll be a completion fee. Right. Again, I think that's probably another piece that depending on who it is you're pitching to plays into your hand a little bit in the, you know, some of these groups could have paid out two thirds of the overall fee uh, shortlist or interview stage and they might not like any of those candidates. So they're already 66% out of pocket 
and the person's got to start again. So yeah, it's just an upfront fee and then the completion fee with the retainer deducted off that. What was typically the average upfront fee you charge? <laughs> Come on. Uh, some of my on clients average. are going to be disappointed probably. <laughs> uh, somewhere seven and a half to 10,000. Okay, yeah, nice. And then somewhere uh, in that range. do you not have any milestones? Do you not have any like, you know, agreed milestones? Like, okay, okay, we've, we'll commence this and then by this period, I'm going to probably give you this or is it not? Is it just then we're going to go through the process, rest on the completion? Yeah, rest on the completion. I mean, it's what I get out of bed for. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's easy to sell retainers, but it's, you know, it's within the wheelhouse. And then the hard work is finding the right candidates and putting the shortlist together. But again, talking about quality of resume shared, you should have it done in the first sort of go. Yeah, and then your track record comes into play, right? It's like, look, typically this is what it looked like. This is what we've done in the past. Mate, I, honestly, like I know the way this is going to be really helpful for people because, you know, I think a lot of people can overcomplicate this and you're just owning how you work. This is the best way to work, you know, and, and everyone benefits. And then on this, because, you know, everyone taught, I'm sure you picked up on this as well. Like everyone says, you know, the fees are bigger in the US. You shared with us the average deal size compared to the UK. But have you typically found yourself negotiating better terms as well? Like what, what's ended up being the average sort of percentages that you managed to negotiate in the US? Because a lot of people say it could be 25, 30%, but we don't know how true that is. The higher end that you quoted and higher is what I'll say. <laughs> All right, sound cool. Matt, I appreciate you over, over sharing here, right? Okay, so I, I just wanted to share a, a text with you, which I think you might find interesting. From your good friend, Nick Carmen. He's a friend of the, <laughs> friend of the, the pod, right? And um, he said he is without doubt the nicest guy you could ever hope to outbill you <laughs> i'm why? not sure yeah i'm not sure i don't know why would he describe you that way i don't know man i don't know i probably i mean some of the guys in america probably think i'm i'm super intense because when you when you come in and you're locked in then you know that's it we're here to make money we're here to to do the job but i don't know i will always try and give people time or always try and uh try and share some some gems of, of value but yeah nick's nick's a good guy he also said how he grinds at work and huge billing so consistently without a pomp or ceremony always impresses everyone around him. Yeah, that's nice to hear. Yeah, like I say, I, I spent a lot of time trying to copy Nick and learn from Nick. And he gave me some really good pieces in terms of building out the desk and doing business development and so on. So I couldn't be happy to have that sort of praise from someone that's achieved so much with McDonald and company. You know, so so look, we, we've covered a lot in this conversation. People listening that want the the US success story, what would be your your part and advice, my friend? Work ethic. Just, I mean, it's it's the boring one, right? It's the one that everybody says. But if you ever look at anybody that's been successful, whether it's in recruitment or any other industry, you know, from sport through to anything else, try and do the best possible job that you can for yourself and for your clients, candidates. Make sure to act with integrity and advise people because. We're playing the long game and uh, there'll be conversations that you have. And I think that you really need to, I think that you really need to treat every single conversation as one that you can get value from, whether it's today or in six months or in 12 months, because people will remember how you conduct yourself on calls and in situations, try and act with integrity and more than anything, just hustle. Let's get it. Look, Julian, been an absolute pleasure. Kudos to you, my friend, your work ethic, what you've created. What's the billings goal for this year, my man? Are we, uh, what are we aiming for? Conservatively, $1.5 million. So that's probably about 1.1, 1.2 million pounds. It's more, it's I don't know more, what the ceiling there's is. More juice, there's some more juice we can squeeze. There's no, you know, it's, uh, for me, um, I think the, the best way to view it is like, you know, you're not playing a finite game, you know, like you're, you're, paying, you're playing an infinite game. Like the goal is to keep playing at the highest level 
And why put like a cap on anything? Do you know what I mean? That, that's why I, I sometimes try and remind myself is like, why would you say, look, I've, I've capped it all out now. Why wouldn't there be more and like just better for you? And there's probably more that, we, that could be done. 100%. I mean, I don't think that market is slowing down. I think as you continue to build relationships and scale things up and learn and get better, that things should continue to increase until I get to the point where you're just killing yourself and you can't do it anymore. But yeah, I think I just need to, I need one thing you didn't ask me, which I'm awful at. So thank you for not time management and organization. I'm just, I'm horrible at it. So I probably spend more hours working than I would need to if I just plan things out better. So maybe that's going to be my, my success route to a one and a half or two million. Love it. Julian, thank you so much. Top man. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope there were plenty of golden nuggets for you to take away. As you'll know, I'm your host here of the Recruitment Mentors podcast, but I'm also the founder of Recruitment Mentors. We're a online subscription-based learning and education platform. We're on a mission to help thousands of recruiters achieve their professional goals and successfully progress their careers through modern and engaging online learning. If you're a recruitment business owner listening to this, there's a good chance that you value self-development, personal development. You're trying to develop a culture of continuous improvement. But we've partnered with a number of grown recruitment companies who were struggling to understand how they can invest more in their people, how they can upskill them more quickly without spending more time, without having to spend thousands of pounds of external trainers. And we've ended up being a really great fit, modern fit for recruitment teams. We can ultimately help you get more out of your teams by giving your people access to modern and engaging online learning, which they can access on demand. The thing that's really cool about what we're doing at Recruitment Mentors is that all of the people that your teams are able to learn from and the people that are delivering the learning content are people that are in role right now. They're billing, they're actively facing the challenges that your teams are, and a lot of the time they're amongst the top performers within their companies, which means your teams are going to be way more confident to learn and spend time on their learning when they know they're learning from people that are doing it right now, have been there and done it. There's nothing worse than feeling like training is not relevant and not current. The best place to find out more about Recruitment Mentors and if we can help you accelerate your team's performance is uh, send me a message on LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn directly, and I'd love to connect with you and, and find out if we can help you get more out of your people.